0: This is a Suno India production and you are listening to Cyber Democracy. Hello and welcome to season 2 of Cyber Democracy. I am your host Radhika Radha Krishnan, a feminist researcher studying gender, sexuality and technology. In this season, we will understand technology from gendered perspectives through conversations with female and trans queer grassroots practitioners. Let us look at how our gender and intersectional identities shape our experiences and engagements with technologies and the internet. In our first episode, we focus on access to the internet for women and queer communities during COVID-19. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit India and a national lockdown was ordered, we were pushed back into the space of our homes. Because of this, our ability to survive and continue livelihoods has been hinged on our access to mobile phones and the internet. But what does this mean for people who do not have such access or for whom this access is controlled by men in the family? In this episode, we discuss the effect that this has had on women for reporting domestic violence, for domestic workers and sex workers, for girls to access online education, and for queer communities to access support structures of chosen families. Today we have with us Bishakha Datta, the founder and executive director of Point of View. Welcome, Bishakha. Could you please briefly introduce your work and the work you do at Point of View, and mention the work that you've been doing, especially during the COVID nineteen crisis?
1: Thank you so much, Radhika, for having me on the show. Hi, I'm Bishaka, and I work on gender and sexuality in digital spaces as part of my work at the non-profit Point of View, which is based in Mumbai. And which builds and amplifies the voices of women and other marginalized genders and removes barriers to speech and expression. So, at Point of View, we basically have a program which is called the Gender, Sexuality, and Digital Technology Program, which is a unique grassroots to global program. And we try and equip women, girls, queer, and trans persons to freely inhabit digital domains through this program. So, that is. What I think I'm going to talk to you all about today, and as part of that, we have actually spent some time in the last six months looking very much at how uh, women, girls, you know, queer communities, etc., have interacted with digital spaces, etc., and what this is, what this means for the kind of world that we're trying to build going forward.
0: Thank you for the introduction, Vishaka. Very glad to have you on the show. So if I could begin with some of the things that we'll be discussing today. During this COVID-19 lockdown, we've all been told that, you know, we should stay at home in order to stay safe. But as feminists, we know that the home is not a safe space for many women. The National Commission for Women has reported that during the COVID-19 lockdown, There has been a rise in the number of domestic violence complaints that they received by email. And the chairperson of National Commission for Women also mentioned that the real figures for this number of cases is likely to be higher than what is being reported. Uh, This is because most complaints usually come from women who send their complaints by post and might not be actually able to access the internet. So could you tell us a little about the digital gender gap when it comes to accessing the mobile phone or the internet for women, and how this has particularly had an impact on reporting domestic violence during COVID-19?
1: So one of the things we've seen during the last six months is that the digital gender gap has taken on deep significance. Um, Studies show that the gender gap in digital spaces in India is anywhere between 33% to about 45%. So the digital gender gap has taken on deep significance in the last six months, and the digital gender gap is anywhere between 33% and 45% in India. And what that means is that if you are a woman, and you do not have access to a mobile phone, and you are in a situation of lockdown, and you experience domestic violence, the only way you can actually report it when you don't go out physically is using your mobile phone. So there's a whole bunch of things that relate to this, right? One is A, you may not have a phone. Two, there may be one phone, but it may be a family phone. And think about this. Suppose you are facing violence from your spouse or your domestic partner, And support, he is the person who has control to that, who controls that phone. Is it likely that you're going to go up to him and say, may I please use the phone? Because, you know, this is what I want to do. It's highly unlikely because you also know that that number can be traced back, right? So that later on, the person can check who you called. And that in itself can lead to further domestic violence because we've seen cases where there's a backlash against women reporting even in the past when they used to report you know either through uh, letters or physically through other means by going to sen- domestic violence centers etc so this is one of the issues that is faced i think the second thing is that it really makes a difference not just who controls the phone but also what kind of phone it is right so f- if you have What's called a feature phone, which is not a smartphone where many, many low-income families, migrants, domestic workers in India still use this old kind of phone, which is called the feature phone. But if that's what you have, then you are not able to, you know, go online to file some sort of complaint. For example, on the national Commission for Women, now. they have a portal, etc. your options get limited. You can only make a call or you can send an SMS. Uh, so the kind of phone you have also really sort of has an impact on this. And I just wanted to say one more thing. I think we really have to question the term domestic violence today. Because we are in a situation where we are all at home and it's not just our physical spaces that we are interacting with, but digital devices as well, right, at home. And therefore, I think we really need to think about including some of the violences that we face from digital devices and expand our definition of what is domestic violence today
0: thank you for bringing up a lot of these pertinent points pishakha i also wanted to ask you that uh, we've also come across instances where even if women do have access to mobile phones uh, and the internet oftentimes this access is mediated through men in the family as you yourself uh, mentioned but what ends up happening sometimes is that because women have been spending too much time over the phone and quote and unquote too much time uh, the men in their family use this as a trigger to inflict further violence upon women. So, in that sense, it's not just the lack of access to technology that makes something like reporting violence difficult, but also just even having access to technology. If you have what is considered too much access, that itself can be a site for violence against women. So if you could share some thoughts around how that has been working during COVID-19, now that women are spending so much time at home with abusive families.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, it's a real pity that in the patriarchal world that we inhabit, women have always been divided into two categories, right, by this system, good women and bad women. And the same categorization is now being applied to the ways in which women use mobile phones or inhabit digital spaces. So, for example, a good woman is seen as someone who doesn't, you know, spend too much time on the phone, who uses the phone only to sort of like, you know, for sort of purposes like work, et cetera, et cetera, who doesn't see porn on the phone, whole bunch of things right and the bad woman is constructed as somebody who essentially just freely does whatever the hell she wants on the phone right like whether it's watching a movie watching a porn watching porn whether it's like getting into relationships etc um so there has always been this whole thing around what we call family surveillance right which means it's often brothers who are really monitoring within the house as well as online how their sisters are using phones. Fathers doing the same with their daughters, male partners monitoring how female partners are using online spaces. And all of this means that the access that women have to phones is not free access, it's actually conditional access. And there are Rewards and punishments, right? Like, if you sort of play the good woman role in the way you use the phone, then you're rewarded. And if you play the bad woman role, then you're punished. And that punishment can be anything from physical to emotional violence to, like, you know, the phone being taken away or the phone just being given to you for like X amount of time a day. And it's just, I mean, it's all part of sort of patriarchy. And we really have to think about you know, free, unfettered access to phones. And I just wanted to actually give a very interesting example that I forgot to give last time, which is this is something that um, happened in August in Ahmedabad. A local court ordered a man to pay 15,000 rupees in compensation to his wife for his abusive posts about her on social media. And the court said that it amounts to mental violence and should be considered domestic violence. The couple had already been in a matrimonial dispute for four years, but they were living together in the same house. And here's something that we didn't consider earlier, which is you can be living with somebody in the same house, occupying the same domestic space, and they can be abusive to you both physically. Or digitally, as happened in this case, right? And that's why I said what I did last time, which is that we really need to think about what domestic violence means today. And does it have a digital component when somebody from your family uses digital spaces to
0: inflict violence on you? Thank you for sharing that, Bishakha. Some very important points that you raised. And now, taking on from your cue of uh, the good women and the bad women, now there are some categories of women that we traditionally view as bad women, right? For example, sex workers. And sex workers are one of the people, one of the groups of people who've been most devastatingly affected right now during the lockdown because the guidelines for physical distancing, etc cannot really apply to the nature of their work. So now that the scenario of work from home has taken so much prominence, uh, in your experience, could you talk about the kinds of women who can afford to work from home on laptops and over the internet and others such as sex workers uh, who are more impacted by this negatively and how their livelihoods have uh, been negatively affected due to this lack of access?
1: Yeah, thank you. Actually, that, again, is another great question, because it's very clear that you need a certain level of privilege to be able to work from home, right? So, for instance, it is much easier to work from home, first, if you have enough physical space. If you are living, for example, I live in Mumbai, and half our city lives in urban slum communities, right? And I and it is quite obvious that the kind of space that people who live in slums have is not enough to really allow them the luxury of working from home online. And that's, and I use the word luxury deliberately because look at me, for example, right? I am currently in a room by myself. I have like a nice table. I have enough space. I have a nice view. You know, I have guaranteed electricity. And I have a good Wi-Fi connection, so I can work online. But if any of these conditions didn't exist, for example, if I don't have stable electricity, how am I going to work online? Secondly, if I really live in a cramped space where there are about six or eight people in that same space, you know, even if I have a laptop, it's very, very hard for me to get the kind of space work there um wi-fi of course is a huge issue and we're seeing this across the country right like i think now the we have to talk not just of a digital gender gap but we really have to talk of a digital sort of infrastructure gap because there are so many people in this country who do not have access to electricity and all the basics that you need and i also want to say that you know again there are so many people who don't have access to just a safe home, which sort of touches on the earlier thing. I actually wanted to quote my friend Nidhi Goel, who runs a nonprofit called Rising Flame. And she, in a report, recently said that women with disabilities have been fighting to get out of their houses as their families worry about letting them navigate space alone And now we are under lockdown yet again, right? And she also asked that because women with disabilities are rarely sort of counted in, how many women with disabilities face violence at home? Nobody knows. How do you reach them? No one has a clue. So sort of, again, shifting gears, it's not just sort of the physical infrastructure. It's many other things that determine the kind of... uh, You know, your ability to actually work at home online. And there are many intangible things, including your relationships with other people in the house, as well as what's called the gender division of labor. So, for example, if you have to take on not just work, doing your paid work at home, but you also have to cook for the family, you have to clean the house, you have to look after a child often these roles are assigned to women. And that means that you have that much less time actually to do the work or you're just way more stretched, right? And continuously stressed and have no free like leisure or personal time.
0: Thanks, Pashaka. So the question question I wanted to take forward about uh, sex workers was that some sex workers that I spoke to previously said that you know um, those among their communities who were more privileged in a sense and who could afford access to a mobile phone have now been able to move uh, some parts of their work online like they can do video calls and they can access a uh, paytm or google pay for making uh, for receiving payments from clients um and also for just keeping in touch with clients for longer Uh, since their work depends upon their clients remembering them. So uh, in this sense, but a lot of sex workers also don't necessarily have that kind of, not just access, but also the digital literacy to know how to use these kinds of services and what are the issues that come up when you use these services and we also see that sex workers have largely been left out of most of the social protection schemes offered by the government so uh, i was wondering if there were any particular instances or anything that you wanted to add to that
1: sure i think in terms of sex workers the first issue really is something that begins offline which is that Sex work is not recognized as a legitimate form of work. And therefore, all the social protections that have been made available to other migrant workers or to other low income communities has not been made available to them. So essentially, they've had no livelihood, whatever, right? The second thing is, obviously, because of the nature of the work, clients have also stayed away. So there hasn't been any income coming from there either. And I think the third thing is that uh, you know, even though sex workers have gone online, a lot of sex workers I've spoken to are really nervous about how do they protect their privacy online. So for example, a common story that we hear is that if a person is performing on video for a client, what can the sex worker do? to ensure that the client doesn't record it and keep that recording either for his own use later or you know use it to blackmail the sex worker and i want to bring up another point here which is you know when in the digital world if you are paying for sex you are paying for one transaction if you record it and then see it again you know, does that become sort of like unpaid labor by the sex worker that you are sort of, uh, you know, turning into pornography in a sense, right? Because it's really that one-time transaction that you paid for. The second thing is that um, I think sex workers are also scared that one if that recording is in somebody's hands, they can either coerce them into having more sex, um, you know, or blackmail them. And I think the... Uh, advice that a lot of groups have been given, including us, is that you may want to really consider the mask actually as a protective device online, also in this kind of situation. One, because it actually masks your identity. And we know that many sex workers, because of the stigmatized nature of sex work, have not told their families how they earn their livelihoods, and they need to keep this as private information so there are these kinds of things the other thing is in physical sex work the money is always collected up front before the act itself in digital sex work this is not what's happening because clients are reluctant to pay upfront and therefore there's a, a sex workers have also said that they're getting cheated sometimes right so that is one set of things the other set of things radhika again which you pointed to is that A lot of people just don't, um, you know, are not that comfortable or confident uh, and never imagined themselves actually having to perform on cameras across screens and really do not want to do it, do not feel comfortable doing it. And it is absolutely unclear at this point what will happen to them, but sex worker communities are taking steps to actually start safe sex regimens even offline
0: so i'm going to move to the next part which is uh, you know uh, a parallel to working from home has been uh, studying at home and uh, education online for girls so schools have now uh, been shut because of the COVID-19 lockdown and almost all education is currently moving online so even when education was happening in schools uh, more traditionally Many families we know did not send their girl children to schools. And now with education moving online, access for girls uh, has strained even further. Some families don't even always have access to the internet, um, such as adivasis in remote areas, street children, pavement dwellers. Uh, In most cases, we know that families, uh, even if they do have access to the internet, girls children are often not prioritized within the house for accessing technology. So could you tell us a little bit more about this situation and how the education of girl children has been currently impacted because of education moving online?
1: Sure. So I think this is one of the really sort of sad things that we see right across India. Uh, is, you know, there's, again, always been a gap between female and male education, even in physical spaces. And there, uh, at the village level, for example, you know, parents were reluctant to send their daughters to school after the sixth or seventh standard, often because they had to go to a school in another village, right? Right. And so they were scared of giving them that kind of mobility because they felt that then the girls would, again, be outside their control, you know, and may like meet someone, get into a romantic relationship, etc. And these were some of the reasons that girls' education in offline spaces was blocked, even though it was always couched in the language of, oh, we are trying to protect our daughters and we are trying to keep our daughters safe, etc now we see that online there is exactly the same fear of mobility right and i think it's important for us to actually now think of the mobile phone even with all its complexities etc as an important digital resource so you know tribal communities in india for long have talked about natural resources that they depend on and there's a very famous saying which in hindi is Jal Jangal Zameen, which in English is water, forest, land, that that's what we depend on to make our lives and our livelihood. And I would actually now say that we have to add mobile phones to this. So it should actually become Jal jungle Zameen mobile, whether we like it or not. And the reason is because today, without a mobile phone, you cannot get access to a whole bunch of other things that you need right to live your life whether it's relief whether it's a domestic violence helpline or whether it's employment or education so in education what happens is that same patriarchal mindset which prevented you know the uh, sixth standard girl from going to another village to uh, for the seventh standard upwards has been sort of has just imprinted itself online, right? Like it's just moved lock, stock and barrel, that same mindset. And so in a context where girls are not given mobile phones, except, you know, in very, very specific and conditional situations, we are seeing a number of things. One is we are seeing that there's a reluctance to buy mobile phones or invest in them for education for girls, right? Whereas families are more willing to invest in these phones for their sons' education. And this again is tied up very much to all these sort of like concepts, like, you know, a girl is pariah, dhan, or like somebody else's wealth, and she will leave the natal family and get married and go away. So she's always seen as a liability rather than an asset. She, it's not. It's assumed she will not be the breadwinner, right? And she's seen as a financial liability. And there's a real reluctance in that sense to invest in her, even though I don't like the term investment when we talk about uh, human development, to be honest. So what is actually happening is we spoke to, say, the principals of girls' schools and colleges in West Bengal, And all of them said that 80% of their girls in their schools and colleges just didn't have access to a mobile. So principals are saying, look, I don't know what to do any longer because I can only educate 20% of the students in my girls' college or in the school, right? So you see the kind of educational gap that's widening and what is going to happen if this doesn't get fixed, And I want to say it's two things, you know, we have been arguing, actually saying that um, in the past, there used to be scholarships for like uniforms and for textbooks and things like that. And we've been arguing that in today's world where education is digital. We need to actually give digital scholarships, right? So we need to actually give mobile phones. We need to give tablets. We need to give computers. We need to give data scholarships so that people have the money to use uh, those mobile phones because you know downloading all these uh, files, et cetera, et cetera, eats up a lot of data, particularly when they are visual, et cetera. So we need these kinds of steps as well, but for all low-income communities. But at the same time, we know that these data fellowships or these digital scholarships are more likely to go to boys than to girls. And that's where we really have to change that patriarchal mindset, which is reproducing itself from the physical or the offline to the online.
0: Now, shifting the focus to trans-queer persons, um, especially for trans-queer persons, the home is a very non-accepting space where their preferred gender or sexual identities are not respected. And uh, in such cases, we see that queer persons often find support outside of the home within their communities. And uh, the mobile phone or the internet is, uh, in a sense, a way to connect outside of the home especially in a lockdown situation where you can't physically step outside the home. So uh, if you could tell, uh, tell us a little bit about how due to COVID-19, um, there has been some kind of policing or access or surveillance uh, of the usage of mobile phones and the internet by trans queer persons uh, within the home, uh, children within the home, and how that has affected their ability to reach out to communities and support structures.
1: Sure. I think this, again, is a very complicated relationship. So imagine an earlier time when people left their houses and took their phones with them and went outside the house, right? And uh, a few queer persons have told us that what has happened in the last six months is that they're at home all the time, right? So the phone is lying around the house. So the first issue is that in a few cases you know, somebody else has picked up the phone, not, not not out of any sort of like evil reason or whatever, but they've just come across a queer person's phone and they've picked it up. And they've then seen either an image or something of the sort, which has ended up with the queer person actually being outed inside the home. So the rest of the family may not have known about this person's, sexual orientation, but has now got to know, and that has in turn, through the phone, they've got to know, and that has actually then made that space much less safe for that person, because in some cases, again, people have told us that they've faced emotional, mental, or physical violence, uh, they've been isolated, again, the phone has been confiscated, they faced stigma and discrimination, and I want us to keep in mind that when you are stigmat, uh, you know, when you are marginalised, and your family doesn't accept your basic identity, you tend to reach out to others who are not just your community, but who are what we call your chosen family. They become your family for you because they accept you for who you. Are and this is what is very very important for many queer people who are not accepted within the home but once the phone starts to be policed because there's so much suspicion now right like having realized that this person is queer the rest of the family is just sort of looking at them with deep suspicion all the time they are not able to actually reach their chosen families and get the support and the comfort which becomes even more critical at a time like that, right? And similarly, again, uh, we know that all are going back to the violence question. I also want to say that, you know, even though we have helplines related to domestic violence, we know that the way in which the helplines are framed tends to be a little heterosexual or very straight, Right. So often the people who are on the other side of the phone helpline are not really familiar or have not been trained in how to tackle domestic violence outside of a heterosexual context, right? Or sometimes do not even take seriously if a queer person calls up and says, listen, my, you know, everybody at home is now treating me really badly and this is a form of emotional violence, would that even be accepted, right? So I think these are some of the issues. And of course, the other issue is that uh, when your phone is being policed, then you can't do anything freely. Of course, you can't like, you know, just talk about your queer life with your friends freely on the phone. You can't really like exchange information because you're not sure who's going to look at it. You can't just like call up a person and just like, you know, have a nice chat about dating or romance or, you know, who you find hot, whatever. So think of all the, you know, like when we talk about lockdown, think of everything that gets locked down for you at that point of time. If you're queer and you're stuck in a home where your real only access to sort of, you know, freedom is through your phone.
0: In conclusion, I just wanted to understand if you had any ideas around how some of these issues for women and queer communities can be improved going forward, especially now during the lockdown. We mentioned some helpful pointers through our conversation today, but if you had any further ideas on how either the state can take more responsibility for mitigating some of these challenges, um, and whether that's something that even can be done currently while we're still living through the pandemic? Yeah, I think that's
1: actually something we really need to think and talk about because, you know, we are now very clearly moving to what's called a fidgetal world, right? Which is the combination of physical uh, physical and digital is what is equal to fidgetal, spelled P-H-Y-G-I-T-A-L. So we don't know what the future will be, but I would guess that the future will have both the digital and the physical woven together right in many many aspects of our life so i think the first recommendation that i would make actually is that it is not enough for the state to think about only our physical lives when it thinks about everything whether it's education whether it's work whether it's violence you know health etc The digital space obviously has to be factored into all of these, not as a separate space, but as part and parcel. But I think the second thing that's very critical is that we also have rights both in physical spaces and in digital spaces, and that any intervention which is digital has to protect, has to start with us as human beings and protect our rights in digital spaces, right? Whether it's a health application, you know, whatever it may be, it has to protect our rights first and foremost. I think these are two sort of basic principles. I think the third is we really have to look at, uh, you know, different sectors, right? And think about how we can build digital resilience. So for example, with domestic workers with migrants we saw that with migrants you know when they were actually traveling long distances etc right often it was a choice between if you had a little bit of cash in your pocket it was a choice between eating a meal or charging your phone And is this really the kind of choices we want to give people today? So I think that's something that we really have to think about. I mean, I frankly think we really have to think about data costs, you know, really bringing them down. We have to think about providing support to the whole educational system to be able to gear itself to move online, including not like, you know, teachers and individual schools or non-profits having to like, you know, organize mobile phones and data for girls, etc. to study. But this is something that the state needs to take responsibility for. Similarly, I would say that the state needs to take responsibility for ensuring that domestic laborers get back their livelihoods, that sex workers also have some means of income going forward, etc. So a lot of I mean, there's a lot of stuff. And I would actually say that, you know, at the end of the day, it's not so much that we need separate things that are digital and separate that are physical, it's really at that intersection that we have to think. And one very, very critical factor is that ultimately, it's we human beings who are Sitting at our phones or using our digital devices. We are bringing our heads online. It's the same headspace, it's the same mindset, it's the same mentality. Until we actually start to value girls, women, trans persons, until we start to give them freedom and equality and dignity, right? Technical solutions are not going to result. In ending the digital gender gap online and technical solutions cannot fix a social problem, which is the inequality between the genders. That we have to fix ourselves as a society.
0: Thank you so much for sharing these critical as well as constructive insights with us on this podcast, Pishakha. We're having this conversation in the middle of a pandemic without the benefit of hindsight. So it's extremely difficult to be able to even analyze this um, and it's great to hear the depth of the understanding and analysis that you've brought on to this podcast today. These are of course very urgent issues and uh, thank you so much for adding your thoughts to how we can respond to them. It's been a delight speaking to you and an incredible learning experience. Thank you once again.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.
0: As we have seen in today's episode, access to technology is a deeply gendered issue. It is not as black and white as having access or not having access. A woman may have access to a phone but may be unable to use that phone to call a helpline number to report an abusive husband if the phone belongs to her husband. A sex worker may have a mobile phone, but may not be able to provide video services to her clients if she is living with a family that does not know about her work, or if she is worried about her videos being distributed to other people by her clients. We have seen many examples of such concerns in today's episode, We've also discussed how we don't yet have a language that is broad enough to sufficiently describe the harms experienced by people in these circumstances. At the Internet Democracy Project, we have been studying how this is a form of surveillance within the home and a way to control women's bodies by controlling their access to data and technology during COVID-19. You can find out more about this research through the links on the podcast page. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cyber Democracy. You can listen and subscribe to this show on our website, sunoindia.in, or any podcast app of your choice. In our next episode, we will be in conversation with grassroots practitioners to look at social protection schemes during COVID-19 and how digital India has failed to deliver its promises to women, causing them to suffer financial hardships during this pandemic. Stay tuned.